Our opening and closing theme is by Midnight Syndicate. For more dark instrumental music like it, visit www.midnightsyndicate.com or find them on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, or Alexa. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Freshly Brewed Noir. I'm Jennifer. And I'm Summer. And this is episode 11, The Atlanta Ripper. Close to home now. Yes. And since we're talking about Atlanta, there have been some cases that have come up recently in July. So we'll just briefly mention them, because if you're familiar with Atlanta, you know about what's going on. If you don't, we just want to talk about them really quick. So in Gwinnett County at the Yellow River Park on July 27th, Tori Lang's body was discovered shot in the temple. Her car was found burned, and it was roughly five miles from where she was found. The next day in Atlanta, Piedmont Park, Katie Janice was found. She was walking her dog, Bowie. She was found. Her body was stabbed along with her dog. Her girlfriend, Emma Clark, actually found her body through a tracking device that she had on her phone, right? Yes. So it was a very brutal scene. The FBI is involved. We don't know to what capacity, but we don't have any suspects. So they're still open, unsolved. Which is scary to think that they're still out there. Exactly. Hoping that there's closure soon. We can figure out who these people are. We don't think that they're linked, but they happened a day apart, which is such a coincidence. That is strange. And both at parks, but they were murdered different ways. Yeah, different MOs. Tori was shot, and then Katie was stabbed. And for somebody to kill the dog, too, and it was a three-year-old pit yes and pits are strong you have one daisy yes and protective i'm sure the dog absolutely tried to protect the owner yes so you know we're not sure how they were able to kill dog and katie but you know tragedy for everyone involved yeah one of the podcasts we listen to has pictures of some possible suspects or maybe people that were at the park that may have some information that they're trying to track down for Katie Janice's case. At Piedmont Park, yes. Mm-hmm. If you do listen to Jensen and Holes, the murder squad, they have covered these cases more in depth. Um, obviously, like I said, they're still unsolved, but they do give you good information and what to look out for. So we will post those screenshots in our story just so, you know, Atlanta's a small community. Right. You know, even though there's so many people here, everyone knows everyone. And they asked that people in Atlanta and around Atlanta share those screenshots. Yeah. We want to get the word out. Someone knows something. Right. If you think you know something, contact the authorities. Yes. So, Summer, what is the story that we have here? We are talking about the Atlanta Ripper murders. 1911 is when they started. I had heard about this story a while back, and then you and I talked about it. And the more we looked into it, I was fascinated with the history behind how the police investigations were done and or not done. Right. And how little exposure this story had and so many Mm -hmm. people were murdered right because it was over 21 or 22 was the body count and we're going to go into all of that information and see what everyone thinks and the history yeah the history of atlanta at that time because it was a very different atlanta than the one we know today yeah i think the social climate definitely was a factor here it was absolutely i think this is a really informative case yeah i think people should know about it i did get the majority of the information from a book and it's by jeffrey wells and it's titled the atlanta ripper the unsolved case of the gate city's most infamous murders 
And his book obviously goes into much more detail than I can give in the podcast episode. But if you are fascinated with true crime like us, if you live in Atlanta, if you don't, if you just find this story interesting, then go get his book because he does a very good job at going into detail about the history of Atlanta, the climate during that time, and all of the murders. He really covers them well. Just reading your notes based on what's in the book, it's in depth. It was hard too because there was very little information or very little to no information about many of the actual victims. Which, which is, is obviously sad. You hate right. that. You hate to have victims just remembered because of the way they died. You want to to know like more about their life and what kind of person they were. Right. The stories that he found were from the different newspapers at the time, and it just wasn't covering cases that involved Black women that were murdered. Obviously, that plays a part in why there was such little exposure. I think so. Definitely. So, in 1911, Atlanta was terrorized by a serial killer or killers whose killing style mirrored that of London's notorious serial killer, Jack the Ripper. Named the Atlanta Ripper by the papers, the Georgia serial killer claimed three times as many victims as Jack the Ripper and targeted only young black women in Atlanta. Like London's serial killer, the Atlanta Ripper was never caught. Some even thought that the London serial killer had taken a ship to America, arrived in Savannah, and then traveled to Atlanta to commit the murders that took place here. So we're going to get into the suspects at the end, and you can make your own conclusions about who committed these brutal murders. Nice. But before we get into the actual murders, really quickly, I want to tell you about how Atlanta got its name and then give you a little bit of history on the city around that time. Atlanta, if you didn't already know this, got its name from the railroads. In the early 1900s, the state of Georgia owned the Western and Atlantic Railroad. Some Atlantic and Western engineers found a place a few miles from the Chattahoochee Banks in 1837 for what they had planned on being the future southern end of the rail line. They wanted to connect this end to Chattanooga, Tennessee. This future location of the quote-unquote end of the line was called Terminus, which literally means end of a transportation line. Walking Dead fans, they probably already are familiar with Terminus. I know. I was about to say, if you've seen The Walking Dead, you know about it. And I think that's about the time when I fell off the season mm -hmm. or the series because... After they got to Terminus? I think so. I think I did too. Yeah. I don't know much about it. I just know they made it there. Right. And obviously the writers of Walking Dead knew about the history of Atlanta's naming. But this was an unofficial name since the city was not incorporated at that time. Then in 1843, the name was officially changed to Marthasville, and this was an honor. <laughs> Come on now. <laughs> I know. Not as cool. Terminus sounds cool. It does. A and little then you, apocalyptic. And then you change it to Marthasville. Marthasville, yeah. And this was in honor of the governor's daughter, Martha Lumpkin Compton. Oh, Lumpkin Compton. Okay. <laughs> You're not buying that. Yeah. We're just making fun of this I whole think thing. Terminus was cool. I really think, and of kept course. kept it as Terminus. Right. The badass city. But now Atlanta, I'm all for Atlanta. In 1845, that is when the city was renamed Atlanta, which is the feminine version of Atlantic. And the name represents the destination as the end of the Western and Atlantic Railroad. That's interesting. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. I mean, first of all, I never really thought of Atlanta as a feminine name. I mean... I didn't either. No. I just thought of it as... Home of the Falcons? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Shout out to them. It was interesting to learn the history behind the naming of our city. Yeah, so that's pretty cool. Now I'm going to get into some history, and then we'll get into the murder. Okay. 
unlike the other large cities in Georgia that were older than Atlanta, like Macon and Savannah, whose economy was supported by farms, Atlanta set itself apart by using merchants and those associated with the railroad industry to fuel its economy. Atlanta would end up with such busy rail lines that it was nicknamed the Gate City and the Chicago of the South. Because as you know, Chicago was very busy, still is. Yeah, very industrial. So we were the Chicago of the South. Nice. The job opportunities in manufacturing that Atlanta offered made the population expand from just 9,000 people in 1860 to over 22,000 by 1865. That's a significant amount. It is. Just in that short amount of time. Atlanta knew. Yeah. I mean, obviously, cities, industries, that's going to cause people to move. Right. It was smart for them to focus on that. And then Atlanta offered things to the African-American community that other cities did not, like higher education through colleges, such as, as you know, we have Spelman, Clark, Morehouse, Morris Brown, and Atlanta University. This drew young African-Americans to Atlanta, raising the number of black Atlantans from less than 2,000 in 1860 to over 35,000 by the end of the century. Wow, that says something. Atlanta also offered a lucrative business and social climate for black residents, such as Sweet Auburn and the West End. Both of those neighborhoods were thriving business districts. This isn't to say, though, that there weren't considerable obstacles still for African-American entrepreneurs. Just 40 years after the Civil War and an end to slavery in the South, the early 1900s brought much economic progress for African-Americans, But there were also many people in Atlanta that had not progressed and still held racist views, which is sadly the case. It's kind of still the case today, unfortunately. Right. Wells said, and Wells is Jeffrey Wells, the author of the book I mentioned earlier. So Wells says that, as some historians have noted, there were most definitely two Atlantas, which is really sad. So what what does he mean by that? He means there was the Atlanta that supported each other, and then there was the other side that still held racist views. Yeah, and that was more segregated. Right. Yeah, that's sad, and that was the reality of that time back then. This was terribly clear in 1906 as the city headed into an election, with the two candidates for state governor being Hoke Smith, a previous publisher of the Atlanta Journal, and Clark Howell, an editor of the Atlanta Constitution. And a little side note here, the papers merged to become one paper later, which we now know as the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. But at this time, in the early 1900s, they were separate entities. So using the connections through their respective newspapers, they argued about ways to disenfranchise Black voters. These two openly supported white supremacy views, and so did the articles in the papers. This increased racial tension in the city, and in September of 1906, papers in Atlanta published news of four alleged attacks on white women that were supposedly carried out by Black men in the city. Historians report this as being the final event that ignited the race riots in Atlanta. This was when, on September 2nd of 1906, a mob of white men went into the Central Business District and targeted Black-owned businesses as well as residents, attacking them on the streets. The riots lasted through September 25th, and it stated that between 25 to 40 Black citizens lost their lives. This obviously had a huge impact on Black Atlantans who had made significant progress as successful entrepreneurs in the city. Wells states, Many lost hope that their city would embrace them and make them feel welcome as part of this new South. How just how just disgusting, but also for them discouraging. But yeah, just to treat you and I have the same views. We don't understand why people would even 
treat each other like that, but... We don't, yeah. And I can't imagine, like you said, the obstacles that stood in their way. Like, even though there were opportunities, like the schools, the businesses... Right. You know, there were opportunities, but it was harder to get them. It was harder to even keep them because you had, at any any given time, somebody could come and take it away from you. Right. And... Like you said, the racial tension was something that's very real, and it's important to set that that tone because that's what... Right, and that's why, why I gave a little bit of history on Atlanta at that time because it's important to know that this was the tone of the city when these murders started happening. Nowadays, we see a very diverse police force in Atlanta, but at this yes. time, that was not the case. Yeah, it's very different um, as far as, you know, Atlanta's a very diverse city yes. now, but back then it was... Back then they had segregation mm -hmm. and they had a police force that was not diverse at all. I think it's it's hard when you don't have people of your own community like advocating for you. So it's definitely yes. like a different and difficult experience. That was Atlanta at that time. And we're going to get into the murders. April 5th of 1909, just three years after the riots, Della Reed's lifeless body was found in a trash pile near 71 Rankin Street. And I'm going to read off the street names because a lot of us will recognize a lot of these locations. Yeah. Not much else is told about this victim. Then on September 7th, 1909, a woman was found in Peachtree Creek, and she was never identified. March 5th, 1910, Estella Baldwin was found dead with the cause of death listed as a concussion of the brain. So that's indicating that she was struck in the head with blunt force. An address was given of 735 North Jackson Street, although the article was not clear on whether this was her home address or the address near where the body was discovered. Over the next several months, seven bodies were found dead from gunshot wounds. All were black women. It is not said whether or not any of these crimes were attributed to the Atlanta Ripper, but this obviously heightened the fear the black community was already feeling after the riots of 1906. So I wanted to include those murders, and they're included in the book. He's very clear that like it's we're not, not sure. We're not sure if, they're if, linked. if it's linked, but all these murders had happened. At least 10 bodies. At this point, yeah. Definitely a different MO, definitely a different way of, you know, murder, but it right. still we can't rule it out. So we have yeah. to, we're giving you the information. You can decide for yourself if you think those are part of the Ripper murders or not. 10 awful murders even before they started talking about an Atlanta Ripper. Yeah, just imagine you're in this minority of people who are being targeted and you just don't know what's going to happen to you. And he was targeting young black women only. Then on January 2nd, 1911, 35-year-old Rosa Trice was found on Gardner Street, just 75 yards from her home. The left side of her head had been crushed with a blunt object. She was stabbed in the jaw and her throat was cut. The murder had been committed at some time during the evening and her body had been dragged for some distance by the killer. No weapon was found and the article also stated that her husband, John Trice, had been arrested for the crime. Trice was later released when no evidence could be found to connect him to the murder. So this is the first really brutal one. The first real brutal one, but it's the first one they kind of establish as a Ripper murder and we'll, we'll get into that shortly because then on February 19th, an unidentified victim was found in Grant Park. Her throat had been slashed and her head bashed in, similar to how Rosa Trice had been killed the previous month. So you have, less than a month later, another woman killed in the same manner. Nothing seemed to happen for a couple of months, or at least nothing was reported in the news. We have to keep that in mind, too. There could be murders that were not reported. 
That's true. So there could be more victims that we just don't know about. Exactly. But then on May 8th, Rosa Rivers was walking with her sister and a friend around 1030 at night near the corner of Auburn Avenue and Howell Street when an unknown black man approached them and shot her. She ended up dying at Grady Hospital from the gunshot wound. The newspaper only reported on the incident with a short four-line paragraph. So there was no mention of a possible serial killer yet. It does have to be mentioned that the press at the time reporting on these crimes were all white-owned newspapers. The minimal reporting of these crimes against young black women is just disgusting. Pathetic. Pathetic. (laughs) Despicable. All of the above. Right. How many people had to die until people were going to report it? Let the community know we're aware of this. We want you to know we're, we're working on it. You know, we're trying to get these uh, victims justice. That was not happening, at least yet. There was no front page story about any of this. The victims either got no media coverage. They were unidentified women or they were in the back pages with a few little lines. Which is unacceptable. It is. It's May 29th. Belle Walker was found with her throat cut about 25 yards from her home on Gribaldi Street. She was a cook and left her job at 191 Cooper Street that Saturday to head home for the evening. Her sister searched for her Sunday morning when it was realized that she didn't come home. Her body was later found in a field near the house. No other details were given about the state the body was in. Then on June 15th, Addie Watts was found near the Southern Railway line. Her head had been bashed in with a coupling pin and her throat slashed. Finally, one newspaper ran an article describing the murders as serial killings. The article by the Atlanta Journal also started comparing the killings to Jack the Ripper And it was the first time the name Atlanta Ripper was connected to any of the crimes. It took at least seven victims with the same violent murders for them to report about it and really tell the public, hey, we may have a serial killer. Yeah. And that's not counting the seven victims who were killed in the shooting, the mass murder. Right. So then that would be 14. So we're talking double digits before it really got any big attention in the news. Exactly. June 27th, Lizzie Watkins' body was found dumped in some brush near Lawton and White Street. The Atlanta Journal did a front-page story on the murder and started examining the similarities between Lizzie's murder and some of the previous ones. And then even then, when they ran that article... Is it with the intention of trying to help the community or is it just trying to get like that shocking headline to sell more papers? You know, I mean, obviously you've got the media competing. So Mm -hmm. it's, you know, whoever can get the, the best story. Right. Was that the intention? We don't know. Yeah, we don't know. You know, what kind of message does that send? I think it sends a message that like, like we our don't lives care. don't right. matter. And exactly. Around dusk on July 2nd, Lena Sharp left her home at 24 Hanover Street to go to the store for some groceries. Emma Lou, her daughter, decided to stay home. When her mother did not return, Emma Lou went out to look for her. When she got to the grocery store, the owners assured her that her mother had not been there that evening. It was later in the evening now, and the streets were not well lit. While walking the streets near her home to search for her mother, Emma Lou came across a tall, broad-shouldered man wearing a broad-brimmed black hat. The stranger asked how she felt that evening, and Emma Lou, having heard about the murder of Addie Watkins, stated that she was immediately frightened by the man and tried to quickly think about how to get away from him. While continuing to walk straight ahead, she told him that she was quite well. The man quickly blocked her path and spoke again, saying, Don't be afraid. I never hurt girls like you. 
Before she could respond, he pulled out a knife and plunged it into her back. Emmalou then states that the man quickly fled on foot. Emmalou had screamed when he stabbed her with the knife, so that obviously caught the attention of some people who came over to help her. And I'm wondering if her screaming and the people coming over is why he fled, if she would have just yeah. been another victim. Right, like, that's why she survived, because she, she screamed, screamed and people were close by and they could come to her aid, thankfully. Yeah. But unfortunately, when the people that came to help Emma Lou went to help look for her mother, they found Lena Sharp and she was already dead with a huge gash on her throat and her head was lying in a pool of blood. The slashing of her neck was so violent that it nearly decapitated her. Oh my god. That's so violent. And the fact that he went after her mom and then mm -hmm. her, mm -hmm. does that say that he was trying to kill both of them or was this completely random? He had killed Lena Sharp and then because he was in that area still, then the daughter knew where the mother was going. He was like, oh, here's another victim. I'll try and kill her. So you think it was just maybe coincidence that... Possibly. He was still in the area and then she was there. Wow. So glad that she survived, but right. obviously being stabbed in the back, so violent, and then to see her mom in that state, it's awful. Well, detectives immediately believed that the man who had killed Lena had also been the man who attacked her daughter that night with the knife. Detectives also started to conclude that the same man was possibly responsible for the previous murder of Addie Watts and others who had been killed in a similar manner during the previous months. Finally, papers other than the Atlanta Journal started reporting on the gruesome murders of these young black women. The Atlanta Constitution also started reporting on the serial killer that roamed the streets of Atlanta. At this point, the papers were frequently reporting on the murders, and it was believed that the Atlanta Ripper had claimed the life of Lena Sharp and at least six other black women over the past month. There was even a reward offered for the apprehension of the murderer by a prominent black undertaker, L.L. Lee, and Mr. Lee not only offered up his own money so that others in the community would help assist the police in the capture of the unknown murderer, he also made a plea to other members of the black business community to add to the reward money so that it would grow larger and bring more attention to the cause so that the vicious serial killer would be caught. But no leads came from this? Not yet. They're still raising money. I gotcha. Okay. Reverend Henry Hugh Proctor, pastor of a church in Atlanta, also assisted in bringing attention to this issue. Unfortunately, segregation and racial tension were still present. So Reverend Proctor and other leaders in the black community suggested that a black detective be assigned to the Ripper murders. Reverend Proctor came to Atlanta in 1894 after graduating with a Bachelor of Divinity degree from Yale University and having previously obtained a Bachelor of Arts degree from Fisk University, he was ordained as the pastor of the First Congressional Church. The church had a biracial mission, and Wells writes that, within a few years, Proctor had made a name for himself in Atlanta as a crusader for decency, racial harmony, and an end to crime. He received an honorary Doctor of Divinity degree from Atlanta University and was one of the leaders in the black community to work towards interracial peace in Atlanta. The community was clearly coming together to assist the police and apprehend apprehending the Ripper so that the attacks on the young black women in Atlanta would stop. So the community is scared and trying to do what they can to bring in detectives to help and nothing's happening yet. July 8th, Mary Yeldell. Mary Yeldell? Yeldell. Yeldell. <laughs> Here we go again. 
<laughs> Mary Yildel, a cook, headed home for the evening. While walking towards home, she became distracted by the sound of a whistle. It sounded to her like it was coming from a dark alley that she was near. And if you've heard our previous episode on Velisca, we know. Watch out for whistling and hooting. Yeah. It's, it's bad news. It's the danger, for mm-hmm. sure. She stopped to see if someone was there trying to get her attention and was quickly approached by a tall, well-built black man. Mary screamed and ran back to the home where she worked as a cook. Mr. Seltzer. Seltzer? Seltzer. Okay. Where'd you get that extra letter? <laughs> Seltzer. Seltzer? I think so. Seltzer? Seltzer? Mr. Seltzer, the homeowner, headed out of his home with a revolver and went to the alley where Mary said the stranger had approached her. Well, thank when, God for him. I know. So when Mr. Seltzer arrived... This is when neighbors are a good thing. Yeah, well, this was her employer. When Mr. Seltzer arrived at the alley, the man was still standing there. Seltzer called out to the man and told him to put his hands up, but the stranger ran away down the alley. Seltzer returned home and called the police. Unfortunately, the police search did not lead them to any suspects. So the police felt as though the Ripper had now attempted to take another life, but was unsuccessful. This would not be the case for long. But great that Mary was safe. So that's wonderful. Absolutely. And, you know, like we said, thank goodness for people who want to help. Yes. Needs to be more of them. Mm -hmm, I agree. July 10th, Sadie Holly was found dead on Atlanta Avenue. Her head had been bashed with a large stone that was found later when a nearby field was searched, and her throat had been violently slashed in the same manner as the previous victims. There was a heel print that was found in the dirt near Sadie Holly's murder. Sadie's shoes were also removed and missing, which is strange. They were never found either. According to the police, this would be victim number eight for the Ripper. For the first time, the Atlanta Constitution put a Ripper victim on the front page. Remember that the Atlanta Journal was the only paper giving front page news stories of the Ripper and his victims, but it even took them too long to start reporting on it. Absolutely. So the newspaper, the Constitution, went on to say that the police department did not have an explanation for its inability to handle the situation, just that it was doing its best. And I'm sure that's what a family wants to hear we're doing our best yeah but no answers right no answers but hey we're doing our best it also stated how the black community was coming together to hold meetings regarding the murders and were appealing to the governor the mayor and other citizens to help them in capturing the guilty party or parties so this is just part one of the newspaper article in the atlanta constitution it says on february 19th an unknown woman was found near grant park with her head crushed and her throat cut on january 20th Second, Rosa Trice was killed near Gardner Street and the Southern Railway in the same manner. From June 19th on, there has been one murder weekly starting with Addie Watts, who was found near the railroad. Her head smashed with a coupling pin and her throat cut. The paper then listed all of the victims found up to Sadie Holly. With such a high number of victims and no suspects at all, the business and civic leaders of the city started getting more vocal about the matter. And on July 13th, the Atlanta Chamber of Commerce called upon Mayor Wynn and Governor Hoke Smith to take action so that adequate police protection could be provided to the areas where it seemed the Ripper was targeting and to offer a monetary reward for the capture of the murderer. Although it seems like a positive thing that was done by the Chamber of Commerce, there were some who felt it was only done because if the murders did not cease, it would have a negative impact on the business climate of the city. So that's what they're worried about. Right. It's like, don't mess with our money. Of course, yeah. When yeah. people start to worry about their money, then Over then it people's matters. lives. Yeah, so it was more... And this is what some people thought, that they were more interested in the economy than people's lives at that time. I mean, it's 
that's not hard to believe. <laughs> it's not hard to believe. No, um, definitely not. But, you know, I, I'm also, you know, reading this article and I'm wondering, you know, are these victims unknown because they just did not care or because maybe they just weren't able to identify them? That may be the case for some of them, but I think they did have information on some victims and it says they just weren't reporting on them like they should. And then it's saying that there was at least one murder a week. So how scary is that to just, you know, be able to try to live your life, but know that every week someone's getting murdered in your neighborhood. That's terrible. So violently. Like they're going to, it's obviously, they hit you in the back of your head somehow. There's a slash your throat. Yeah. And these women were young women who had jobs that required them to walk to the job early in the morning or leave work late at night. Many of them were cooks in and around Atlanta. And so they left and walked home on dark streets. Right, because they didn't have sufficient lighting in their streets, right? Correct. In that community. Correct. So it was like, it was set up to be the perfect crime scene. Yes. And so unfortunately, that's... So if you're a serial killer, obviously you're going to these streets that are not well lit, where you know women have to walk home by themselves at night. Yeah, it's the perfect opportunity for someone who is a serial killer Mm -hmm. and who wants to commit a crime. Right. Shortly after Sadie Hawley's murder, the police brought in a suspect. Henry Huff was a 27-year-old laborer who lived near downtown Atlanta. Witnesses put Huff with Sadie on the night she was killed. In addition, police reported that when they arrested Huff, he had on bloody clothes, a gash on his head, and visible scratches on his arms. This led police to believe that Sadie may have fought back against her murderer. Huff's explanation for this was that he had gotten into a pool room fight. The second suspect to be brought in was Todd Henderson, a 35-year-old man who was identified by Emma Lou Sharp as the man who accosted her. Detectives had been searching for Henderson since the night Sharp was stabbed. The papers reported the case against Henderson was strong. However, when detectives brought Henderson in for Emma Lou to see if he was the man who had attacked her, Her response to them was, to the best of my knowledge. And of course, if you're identifying somebody, to the best of my knowledge doesn't seem concrete. No, it doesn't sound like you're confident. Mm -mm. So detectives then asked Henderson to say, how you been getting along? It said that when he said this, Emma Lou pulled back in horror, suggesting that she had recognized his voice. Okay, but how do you feel about where they'll have the alleged attacker say something? And so the victim's listening to the voices. Voices are not accurate, in my opinion, I think. And if you say something that happened in a very intense time... That can trigger you. That can make you feel like bring you back to that place. Right, just the words. Exactly. So I feel like there should at least be more than just the voice. Maybe the physical traits, plus the voice, plus, you know, mannerisms. Because there are situations where you're not always going to have that opportunity to see your assailant, right? Exactly. So you do kind of have to go based off of other things at that point your other senses but the fact that they think just because she jumped back in horror that that could be him based on his voice i think that that's not strong enough to conclude that this is the guy unless it was i mean hello morgan freeman christopher (laughs) walken those are distinct voices right but the rest of us i think people can sound like each other all the time we listen to podcasts and we're like who was speaking exactly Mm -hmm. yeah so i don't think it's a definite way to identify right and 
you're in such a vulnerable state at that point as well. So I'm sure she was scared of men at that time. And then she heard the phrase again, and it could have just startled her just based on the words alone. Right. So I think we agree that we don't think it's the most accurate way. I don't think so. So additionally, two witnesses came forward. One was a grocery store clerk near 24 Hanover Street, near the scene of Emma Lou's mother's murder, who said that she saw Henderson in the vicinity the night of the murder. The second witness was from a drugstore that was located on the intersection of Pryor and Decatur Streets. We know those streets. We do! Where Sadie Holly was seen with Henderson inside the store around 11 p.m. the night of her murder. Henderson maintained his innocence and said that the reason he was seen by so many was because he lived in the area and that if he was going to kill anyone, his wife would have been his first victim a long time ago. Okay. I, when I read that, I was like, hold on. Did your, you asked me if it was a typo, that? right? <laughs> no, he really said that to police. He sure did. Yeah, that's, that's concerning. So, But does that then show you that, okay, he's being honest. He's like, no, I would have killed my wife first. So does that mean he wasn't really guilty? If he's going to be that transparent, mm -hmm. it is telling. Is it I going think. in his favor or is it going against him, do you think? Yeah, I don't think he... I think he was being honest about that, unfortunately. Also, if he's going to be honest about that, then maybe he didn't kill her. Yeah, I think you're right. Wells does state in the book that Henderson did, in fact, live near the area where Sadie was found. He lived near the West Point Beltline, where it crossed Hill Street, which is also not too far from Grant Park, where the unidentified body was found. And it is close to the area of town where two other Ripper victims' bodies were discovered. We should also note that Henderson was in and out of trouble prior to his arrest due to having attempted to cut his wife. He would also follow her around town to spy on her. Yeah, he's not doing himself any favor. But does that make him a murderer? I don't think so. No, it makes him, you know, violent. It makes him violent, um, yes. And in the wrong place at the wrong time. I mean, Possibly. He is spotted. I mean, what are the, the coincidences where, you know, he stated he's... He spotted with the victim. Spotted with the mm -hmm. victim in those same areas where victims' bodies are found. He lives in the area where a lot of the victims... Right, so he has access then. I would say there's some stuff that doesn't look good for Henderson. Yeah, but that doesn't mean doesn't... that he's guilty. Exactly. While these two suspects were in custody, six young black women were frightened by a man they said appeared out of nowhere in a field as they were passing by on the way home. The women screamed and ran, and someone in the area called the police when they heard the screams. The women described the man as tall and black with a black hat and long sleeve shirt. At this point, the public was not aware of the two arrests that had been made. Police searched the area but did not find anyone. The press assumed that it was most likely a joke. Do they think that the joke was on the... They think the, the man was just trying to scare the women. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. uh, well, I mean... Come on, you got to take, you can't just assume that. You can't assume that, right? You should look into it. Yeah, especially in such a sensitive time. Right. But they just, they thought it was a joke. During this time, Atlanta Mayor Cortland Wynn held a meeting with the chairman of the police board, Carlos Mason, the chief of police, Henry Jennings, and the chief of detectives, Newport Lanford. Mayor Wynn made the following statement at the meeting. Just why the police have not been able to hold down the unusual number of crimes reported in the city in the past few weeks, why the detectives have not been able to apprehend the criminals, and why the police are unable to cope with the situation is more than I can understand, but these things I'm going to find out if there is any possible way. So does it sound like he's 
caring about his community and wanting to look into things or is it just... I mean, it's, just... Not, it's not screaming that to me. <laughs> what do you think? Yeah, I, I'm not feeling it yet. Sorry, Mayor Wynn. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, I think trying to calm the people down, but I don't know how genuine that is and right. if they're really trying to stop action. anything, make take action. Mm-hmm. Well, a few days later... After Sadie Hawley's murder and the arrest of the two suspects, eight undercover police officers were assigned to night duty in the city. Then, finally, on July 14th, the papers reported that Governor Hoke Smith had established a $250 reward for the capture of the Atlanta Ripper. I'm not sure what $250 would have been in you know, 1911, but obviously That's it a was significant amount. Right, a more significant amount than we see it as today. As the investigations into Huff and Henderson continued, more circumstantial evidence came to light regarding Henderson's connection to Lena Sharp and Sadie Holly. Police found out that Henderson was previously seen with Sadie in a lodging house on Decatur Street. On the night of the murder, it is said that Henderson came back to the same place looking for her. Eyewitnesses again confirmed that they saw Sadie with Henderson on the night of the murder as late as 11.10 p.m. and that they had seen them together previously two nights prior to her murder. Two more additional witnesses had come forward, one woman to say that she had also seen Sadie with Henderson on the night of her murder, and streetcar conductor W.R. Atchison placed Henderson in the area as late as 12 55 a.m. He would have time to commit the murder and then hop on the bus and go off, huh? Guess if he's if he works quickly. It sounds like the murders were pretty quick. Yeah, even though they were brutal, they were quick. But you're right. Is that even enough time? I guess depend. Hmm. Doesn't sound like he was doing any like cleaning up of the crime scenes. No, so none of the crime scenes look like they were being cleaned up or hid or nothing. Right. Yeah, but I don't know how long the mutilation part lasted. Right. We don't know how long that was. When asked by the police if he had owned a razor or pocket knife within the last year, Henderson denied owning either. But when police questioned his wife, they found out that he did own a pocket knife and that his wife had just borrowed it from him within the last week. So he did have one. It was also confirmed that he owned a razor and that on the day after Sadie's murder had taken place, he ended up taking his razor to a local barbershop to be sharpened. This was like a common service during that era. Okay, so it's not unusual. It's not unusual to take the razor to go get it sharpened at a barbershop, but he had said he didn't have one. And oh, he's like, gosh. I didn't. Ha- I don't have a razor. I don't have a pocket knife. And he had both. Yeah. Once again, he's not helping himself here. No, he's not. But is he lying? I don't know. Right. Is why, he why just like you- right? Maybe he's just like, I don't want to be framed for these murders, and so I'm not going to tell you I have a pocket knife. We don't know. Yeah, the but I'm process. openly going to tell you that if I was going to kill someone, it would be, It'd my, be wife. my wife. I mean, so that's why the wife was like, yeah, he's got a pocket knife. Let me just tell you about him. Right. It's a little uh, mixed, mixed signals here. <laughs> Regarding Lena Sharp's murder, a few days after Holly's murder, a refreshment stand owner in the Hanover Street area named George Brooks said that he saw a man that looked like the description of Henderson leaving from the direction of Emma Lou Sharp's screams on the night she was attacked and the night her mother was murdered. The man came to the police station and made a positive identification of Henderson. The man also brought a bloody rag, which he said Henderson had dropped on the street while leaving the area. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Wouldn't it be great if they had the forensics back then to test the blood? Yeah. That would I mean, have been evidence here evidence, that could be tested. Maybe some answers. I guess that is disposed of now, huh? Oh, yeah. I'm sure. It's long gone. Darn it, because that may give us some answers, right? Yeah. I mean, I don't know how long that stuff is testable but i think it's testable for quite a long time after because they tested blood from 
the Jack the Ripper murders from, it was on a scarf or something over a hundred years later. Oh, wow. They so, were yeah. testing the blood. And of course, like they say, the evidence breaks down. It depends on how much was recovered and still there. But yeah, they can test these things for quite a long time after the incident. I wonder what happened to it. I don't know. If it's still there. Test it. Can can there be testing can done? T- <laughs> <laughs> so July 16th, a meeting was held at Wheat Street Baptist Church to help raise support in the black community in an effort to protect the women from the Ripper. Speeches were delivered by prominent black ministers and citizens in the community, such as Reverend P.J. Bryant, Professor P.C. Parks, Reverend R.D. Stinson, J. McHenry, and H.A. Rucker. As the investigation into the case of Lena Sharp's murder and Emma Lou's attack continued, Henderson's attorney was able to get those charges dropped for lack of evidence. However, Henderson was still held on the murder of Sadie Holly. So, in July, we have two more Ripper murders, Sharp and Holly, and then two suspects arrested, Henderson and Huff. The papers are also going crazy with what Wells calls Ripper mania. There was story after story about it, and it obviously made the public very scared, but also interested in talking about it and what to do to stop it. So it was good that it was out there so people could be aware of it, finally. Yeah, and they could have conversations about it and be, you know, protect themselves. Yes. Obviously, I think Rippermania is probably everyone being frantic and kind yes. of... Yep, and the papers just, you know, one story after another, and I'm sure they started to sensationalize it. Again, like you said, it would sell papers. The Ripper was so popular in mainstream media and around town that other murders not even attributed to the Ripper by police were being called Ripper or Ripper-like murders. So there's one that's funny, or that you may find funny. It's a lady named Mary the Ripper by the papers, was arrested for threatening a woman in Atlanta, and she visited the victim's home several times looking for a man. She apparently said she needn't be scared of Jack. I'm Mary the Ripper, and I'm going to get her. When this Mary the Ripper went before a judge on the charges, she had admitted to killing a man in South Carolina, but it had apparently ended in a mistrial. She also allegedly shot her husband in Augusta, Georgia. After hearing this, the judge asked, I thought you said you had a husband here. And so she replies to the judge, that's my Atlanta husband. The other one is in Augusta. Oh, (laughs) okay. (laughs) Well, so just to be clear, judge. (laughs) Yes, because we're talking about Atlanta husband, not Augusta, right? There's clarification. So this was Mary the Ripper. And so was she she wanting to be this person? No, again, it's just... I think the media sensationalizing it and even people hearing about the Ripper murders. And so maybe she did come up to the woman because she was looking for her Atlanta husband and she's coming to this woman's house. And maybe she did say, hey, I'm Mary the Ripper. You better watch out for me. uh, Marking her territory. Right. And just using like the Ripper murders as a way to intimidate this woman. I see. Give me back my Atlanta husband. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think that was. uh... You don't think that (laughs) didn't work. That was helping her out. Again, it was Ripper mania. The Ripper was talked about everywhere. It was very well known. It's like the hot topic. Yeah, and even crimes that have nothing to do with it were it's now. like I stole some groceries I'm and the I Ripper must be. thief. <laughs> <laughs> it could be. Huh? I think so. I think you're right. I think it was just everywhere. It's like just that like minimal of a crime yeah. that would be attached. They'll figure a way out. The media would spin it some way. Yeah. yeah. The Ripper ripped off the that local drugstore. Well. <laughs> yes. 
All right, so I think we're going to end here on part one. I think that's a good idea because we have a lot more to cover. We have a lot more victims and suspects, and we're going to get into all of it in part two, which we hope to get to you next week. Yeah, so hopefully you don't have to wait two weeks for the next one. Right, we're going to try and get it out fast so you can just binge one and two. Yeah, because we know that you want to know. About this. Yes. You need some answers. Right, this is an Atlanta I also need answers. I know. You'll get them quicker than the listeners will. (laughs) (laughs) But thanks for listening. Yes, we appreciate you. We hope you enjoyed it. And this is something that is not as known. So trying to share those crimes that you may not have heard before. This is one that you would think would have been. This is huge. I can't believe it's not bigger than, but we'll we'll get into that. Yeah. Stay tuned next week. And stay caffeinated. Absolutely. Follow us on our socials. Yes. At Freshly Brewed Noir. And you can send us a Gmail at freshlybrewednoir at gmail.com if you have any suggestions, things you'd like to hear. Leave us a review. Rate us five stars. Please and thank you. Just five. No more, no less. Stay safe. Stay caffeinated. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.